Good morning, church. Would you please be turning in your Bibles, as we have for some weeks now, to the Gospel according to Luke. This morning, we will be, in chapter 4, we'll be looking at the first 13 verses. And as I read that over you now, would you please remember that these are the words of the Lord. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was being led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had finished, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this dominion and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is written, you shall, not, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. And thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. And as we do each week, I'll take a moment and ask for God's blessing on this time, if you'll pray with me. Father, as we come into your presence this morning, we come as a people who are hungry for truth. We also come to you regularly as a people who have had to face a very dark and dangerous foe, just as your son did. He is still active. He is still prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And we need to get a glimpse of your son this morning, Lord, And see how Jesus so resolutely and so completely fought back and defeated our enemy, the devil, so that we might do the same. Would you please encourage our hearts and strengthen us this morning during this time? It's in the name of Jesus we ask this. Amen. Well, in his magnum opus, Knowing God, which I would say is required reading for every Christian in the church, J.I. Packer once said, you sum up the whole of the new covenant if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity... Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child 
and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, Packer goes on, everything that makes the new covenant new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in this, the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. What an appropriate text to begin with this morning as we've celebrated baptism and we've thought about adoption already. Well, Packer is absolutely right in this statement. If there is one thing that solidifies our assurance of grace... If there's one thing that would energize a faith to endure the deepest of trials, if there's one thing that propels us to a joy that produces love and good works, it is the knowledge that we have been brought into the family of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Yahweh, the Christian thinks, the Christian believes deeply, Yahweh God is now my Father and He loves me, and he is pleased with me, and I can trust him. But if you were the devil, and you had limited insurrection resources to allocate, what would be the decisive point of your assault on the life of the Christian? Without question... When he comes against you and me and other covenant members in our body and other believers all around the world, just like when he came against Adam and Eve, and yes, even in his 40 days barraging the true Son of God, his plan is the same. You can't trust your father. You can't trust him. We'll see this morning, beloved, if you are in any way to be successful in your resistance of the slanderer, there is one thing that you must be settled in your mind about, and that is that I can trust my Heavenly Father. I can trust Him. Well, at the conclusion of last week's text, we saw that Jesus is both Savior of all mankind, meaning Jews and Gentiles, And that he is the head of the new race of redeemed humanity, being designated the beloved son of the father. That's chapter 3, verse 22, that we went through last week. It's in that immediate context of Christ hearing those very important words that we read. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was being led around in the wilderness by the Spirit for 40 days, being tempted by the slanderer. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had finished, he was hungry. Now notice first this morning that it was God's will that Christ be sent into the wilderness. 
The last audible words our Lord heard were of the Father's love for him. And then you must go out. You must go out into the wilderness. Luke is doubly clear as opposed to Matthew and Mark. He says that Jesus was filled with the Spirit and he was also led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now you may be thinking, it, it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, how could he love his son so much? And then as Mark says, he uses the language, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. That's from Mark 1 verse 12. As I alluded to in the opening this morning, this is the first true test of the sonship of Jesus, that he would hear his father's words and he would believe them and he would remain faithful to what his father had said. Now, some of you might also be wondering, I am curious how the second member of the Trinity could at a certain point in time suddenly be filled with the third member of the Trinity. Aren't the members of the Trinity all one God? Well, this is typical Lucan terminology to describe how the, the Spirit empowers a person for some kind of ministry or good work. You remember from Luke 1.15 that John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb for his work in ministry. Elizabeth in 141 was filled with the Spirit to prophesy to her cousin Mary. Before Stephen was stoned in Acts 7.55, he was filled with the Spirit as he gazed into heaven and saw the Lord Jesus seated on his throne. And Paul even encourages his new covenant churches in Ephesus to not get drunk with wine, but to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. So what you're seeing here is our Lord exemplifying the new humanity through repentance, which Jesus has just exemplified for us as he went forward in baptism, though he didn't need to repent. He's demonstrating what a righteous life looks like. And then through obedience to the Spirit, we should follow Jesus in a Spirit-filled walk and life. Notice secondly in our text this morning that the testing was not momentary. It was 40 days of harsh trial in the life of the Lord Jesus. Elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke, he speaks of the kind of terrain that Jesus was in as the desolate regions or the waterless places. That's from Luke 8 and Luke 11. Jesus was not lounging around in someone's secret garden. He was roughing it out in the middle of nowhere, and it was for 40 days, which is also, as you know, a significant number in the Bible. 40 was the number of years that the people of Israel wandered in their wilderness. 40 was also the maximum number of lashes a guilty person could receive under Jewish law. There were prescribed 40 days of uncleanness after the birth of a male child. The floodwaters prevailed on the earth for 40 days. Ezekiel bore the iniquity of Judah on his side for 40 days. Elijah hiked to Mount Horeb without food or water for a total of 40 days. And Moses was on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments for 40 days. This last one is very significant because each of Jesus' defenses 
against the assaults of the devil come from the book of Deuteronomy, come straight from the mouth of Moses. When we see the number 40 in the Bible, it should ping in our minds, this is a period of testing. What we're about to read is going to be a season of testing. Notice lastly, that the slanderer was present the entire time. The verb perezo, being tempted, in your legacy standard version, is a present participle. So no matter where you place that in the Greek sentence, as we translate it in English, we know that it's connected to this trial of Jesus. He was being tempted, and that lasted for 40 days. Now, the bulk of the content that we're going to go through this morning, this sort of desert showdown between Jesus and the devil, comes to us in the three challenges when Jesus' fasting days had finished. But every one of the 3.46 million seconds, which is how many seconds make up 40 days, were filled with assaults challenging the truth of what Jesus had just heard from the Father. Now pause for a moment and let me go back to what I said last week about Jesus and Adam. You remember that both were called the Son of God. Yet one was commissioned as a son in paradise in the companionship of his beautiful new bride in the midst of a perfect garden full of every kind of good thing to eat. And yet, that son of God, Adam, failed. He failed miserably. There is no sorrier blunder in all of human history than a man free from sin and with the ability to truly choose either good or evil. He chose to side with the enemy. He rejected his heavenly father. Now Jesus faces a similar test, except Jesus would leave his ordination and go into a wasteland where he would have to fight alone without any companionship. The enemy's advance would come against him during a moment of great physical weakness, having eaten nothing for those many days. One commentator, I believe, grossly understated his case when he said, if environment was the determining factor in overcoming temptation, Jesus was playing at a disadvantage. Could probably say much more than that. And still, glory of glories, fully man, in human form like unto Adam's and ours, Jesus would emerge from this trial victorious. He would win. And not just to bring God the Father glory, and not just in accordance with the fulfillment of his mission, but Jesus would triumph for us as a new representative, head of humanity. He would do as St. Ambrose once said, better than Adam. Adam is cast out of paradise into the wilderness. So Christ, the new Adam, goes into the wilderness on our behalf then to come forth from that temptation to lead us back to paradise. Jesus is the better Adam. He is better in every way. Well, what does this mean? That Christ, having accomplished what no other ever could, has brought salvation through his perfect obedience 
as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14. That he is now the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man can come to the Father except through him. Which is as much as to say that any man who comes through Christ has chosen the right way and has believed the right truth and has received the new birth, the new life. And thus, each one has access to and sonship under the name of God the Father. Lost person, would you come and have peace with God? That's what Dan did. He realized and acknowledged his sin. He addressed it as only Christ can by laying it before Jesus at the cross and putting all of his hope and trust on Jesus. He said, this is the son of God. This is the man who can save me. Come to Jesus Christ, lost person, and find rest for your soul. Now, even though this Jesus emerged from every trial victorious, beloved, we can't make our way through this text this morning without reminding ourselves of this. The same enemy who opposed Jesus in the wilderness is still alive and active today. You probably noticed that during the reading of the scripture that I just read, I replaced the name devil with slanderer. The name devil is the Latinized version of what The Greek word actually means, if interpreted literally, one who slanders, one who accuses, one who lies to, deceives, tricks, throws shade on, etc. Though all of this happens in the unseen realm, this great struggle between us and the devil, the impact on our lives is seen and yet very real. The entire testimony of the Bible, even the New Testament, confirms that this is the case. Paul said that unbelievers actually make their sacrifices to demons and not to their little fabricated idols. He said, though they're bowing down before a statue, there's something more going on there. They're actually worshiping demons. Peter said that even today... This same slanderer prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. James commands that we resist the slanderer, and he will flee from us. I heard that the first step to recovery is admitting that you have a problem. Well, don't be frightened by the devil, and don't be obsessed with him either. There are Christians online in the Haunted Cosmos chat group, for example that need to repent of an inordinate infatuation with the principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities in the heavenly places. People chase this rabbit way too far down the hole. At the same time, we are commanded to not be ignorant of the slanderer's designs. That's a command of God. Jake Torgerson posted a tweet from the New York Post this week with a picture of a Ouija board. The tweet said, your guide to communing with the dead safely this Halloween. Sounds like a banger of an article. (laughs) When I was growing up, discipleship for how to handle something like that was uniformly dismissive. Oh, that spiritual stuff is all nonsense. Ouija boards are dumb. 
Don't believe what you can't see. We can't communicate with the dead. Demonic activity doesn't work the same way anymore. Ghosts aren't real. Keep your head in the real world. Anything else is just a bunch of childish fantasies. And there's no such thing as Bigfoot. Well, we'll see about that. <laughs> After reading this text this morning, though, with all of the demonic activity in the scriptures, I would want to say to the people who discipled me as a young man, tell that to my Jesus. Spiritual warfare is not real. It looked very real in this text. It looks very real all throughout the Bible. I don't see anywhere where that changes. Peter tells us that it's going to continue. The assaults are going to continue to come. Now, I don't want to go too far down this direction. I want to make sure that we deal with the text this morning. I will mention that on July 3rd of 2022, I preached a whole sermon about the slanderer's tactics from 1 Peter 5. And if you'd like more details, you can refer back to that message. But we can learn this from Jesus' testing this morning. Temptation will come to people who are not in sin. Temptation will come to you, beloved, even though you are not in sin. For some of you, this may be the most encouraging thing I say all morning long. Yes, James does talk to us about a temptation that arises from our lusts, from James chapter 1. But that's clearly not what happened to the Lord Jesus. He's not being tempted because of the lusts that were arising from within him. The only thing that provoked this trial was our Lord's willingness to obey the prompting of the Spirit of God. He was walking in obedience. And then the trial, it just came. He didn't ask for it. But that does cut both ways. If the enemy came to Christ and he was not in sin... He can and will come for us too, even though we are not in sin. Maybe you've had one of those days where everything was going just fine. And then boom, temptation pounces on you. Before you know it, you're fighting anxiousness or fear or rage. You might even be sitting there thinking, what just got into my house? Everything's going nuts right now. Maybe it's been a rather difficult day. More likely, it's been a difficult stream of days, maybe months. The schedule is all off. The kids are rowdy and rambunctious. None of it is your fault. It just is what it is. And you're trying to process in your mind before the Lord how to remain faithful and joyful. And then you hear in your head as loud as a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, do you think if you were really loved by God that he'd treat you this way? This doesn't seem very fair to me. Beloved, that's how the game gets played. That's the tactic. That's the slander. That's how sneaky the enemy is. But it doesn't mean when that temptation comes that you're in sin in that moment. Not yet. It doesn't change the fact that God's word still promised you that no temptation would overtake you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The slanderer said it. Now what are you going to do about it? What did Jesus do about it? 
Let's look at our text this morning, starting in verse 3. I'm going to take the remainder of our time to look at these three different temptations. From verse 3, And the slanderer said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The enemy, beloved, is opportunistic. He looks for a weak spot, and that's usually where he makes his attack. Jesus is hungry, having had no food for 40 days, the longest humanly possible. And Satan tempts him to make bread. Now that makes sense. I mean, the hunger pangs would have given the devil a pretty strong advantage, you would think anyway. But the lie that he gives our Lord is more subtle than that. Jesus had just heard the Father say, you are my beloved son. The temptation begins with, if you are the son of God. Now, you might immediately think, okay, so he's making it personal. He's challenging the sonship of Jesus. Well, let him have it, Lord. Lock and load him. Go after him. Get that devil. Bring him down. He's a punk. Now, I exaggerate that a little bit because I want to make a point here. When we get angry at the slanderer, we will be tempted to say some things that we ought not to say. Peter said that the ungodly, the ungodly are the ones who are daring, self-willed, and they do not tremble when they blaspheme the glorious ones. He's talking about demonic forces. Whereas angels, he goes on to say, who are greater in strength and power than us, do not bring a reviling judgment against the demons before the Lord. That's from 2 Peter chapter 2. Jude said that the archangel Michael wouldn't blaspheme the slanderer, but only said, the Lord rebuke you, from verse 9 of the letter of Jude. Doug Wilson told a story one time about a Sunday school class he was in as a boy, and the children were taught one of those cute little Bible songs. At the end of the song, the kids agreed to playfully add the tag, and if Satan doesn't like it, well, he can sit on a tack. It sounds cute, sounds humorous, it sounds funny, but as soon as Doug's father, Jim, heard about this, he told his son, I don't ever want you to say anything like that again. And he went on to teach Doug that it is not a light matter to utter insults or nonsense about our spiritual adversary. In short, degrading words make degraded people. Satan would like that. Secondly, notice this. The text says, if you are the son of God. It doesn't say, since you are the Son of God. There's a difference. The temptation isn't primarily about the sonship of Jesus. It's not. He's not questioning who the Son is. He's questioning what the Father has just said. That's what he's bringing into question. The primary target in this whole temptation sequence, it's not the Son. It's the trustworthiness of the Father. If you are God's beloved Son, I mean, that's what He just said to you, right? Isn't it about time you got something to eat? 
I thought he said he was pleased with you. Shouldn't a father treat his child better than this? Even more briefly, God has abandoned you, but you don't need him anyway. You can take care of yourself. Now, we talked about Jesus and Adam, but even in this text, there's more layers going on here. There's more type and fulfillment that Jesus is accomplishing in just this encounter with the devil. Think of another time when God's children were in a wilderness and temptation to disbelieve their heavenly father seized them. It gripped them. They were fearful. They were angry at him. Right after the exodus from Egypt, Israel found itself in a wilderness and also hungry. Moses would later recount, And Yahweh humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna that you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know something. Know what, Moses? That man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of Yahweh God. It's exactly what Jesus quotes here. Deuteronomy 8.3, he gives the same response to Satan that Moses gave to the people of Israel. Jesus is the new Israel. He's accomplishing everything that they failed at. What a savior. Jesus would not fall for the same mistake that the old Israel did. He would not forget the words that he had heard from heaven. He would not allow this trial to be used as evidence that God's promised love for him had altered in any way. R.C. Sproul provides a helpful formulation of Jesus' response to the devil. Look, Satan, I'm not going to turn these stones into bread because I don't need bread as much as I need the Word of God. I live by the Word of God. I trust the Word of God. I may be hungry now, but my father said that I am his son, and I'm going to live by that. Christ the King, what lies of the enemy are you buying right now that are in direct contradiction to the Word of God? You can't have kids of your own. God must have plagued you with some kind of curse. You still can't find a spouse. God doesn't love single people as much as he does all these married folk. Look at all those men that are getting promoted to elder or deacon. If God cared about you, your name would have been called. You're the only kid your age here, and there's nobody else that relates to you. So much for God's covenant family doesn't seem to be working for you. When you face an assault of accusations from the enemy, the point of it is almost always to make you distrust your heavenly father. The question is not, am I going to have the strength to resist this? That's not the question that we should be asking. The question is, whose words are true? Whose words are true? Now, I'll talk more about fighting back in just a minute. But let me say this before we move on. If you don't trust your heavenly father, what's standing in the slanderer's way from devouring your joy and hope today? We have to trust our heavenly father. That's what Jesus is showing us here. Let's look at the second temptation. Spoiler alert, though. The strategy of the enemy does not change. The tactic is still, you can't trust your father. And Satan led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And then the slanderer said to him, 
I will give you all this dominion in its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, it shall all be yours. Now, in contrast to Matthew, who has Jesus standing on a high mountain, Luke has Jesus, if you'll allow me to speak this way, diabolically raptured, so to speak. He's caught up to a place of such perspective that he can see all of the kingdoms of the world in one moment of time. And the enemy claims to have authority here, and he says that he's willing to delegate that authority to the Son of God should he accept the terms. Now, we can pause for just a second and ask an honest question. Is Satan bluffing here? Does he actually have the authority to offer what he's offering to the Lord Jesus? Or is he just making something up? Is he lying to the Lord? Is he saying that he has more than he actually has? I don't think so. In the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to our adversary multiple times as the ruler of this world. John 12, John 14, John 16. John himself would later testify in his first epistle that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air and the god of this world, Ephesians 2 and 2 Corinthians 4. I think he actually did make a legitimate offer here. But the question is, where did he get that authority? Where did he get that power? Now, we aren't given explicit information about this in the Bible, but there are hints throughout the pages of Scripture. We learn from Psalm 82 that God created heavenly beings called Elohim, gods with a lowercase g, and that they were each given authority over various territories on the earth. Some were given more and some were given less. Both Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 describe with supernatural language a ruler who appears to have dominion over the whole earth and whom God cast down from heaven for his haughtiness when unrighteousness was found in him. That's from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Revelation 12 teaches us that at the cross, Satan and his forces lost their place in the divine council of Yahweh and were cast down to the earth where he continued to exert his sinful dominion. But praise be to God, after the cross, we're told in Matthew 28 that Jesus now has all authority in heaven and on earth. Now after that string of scriptures, there may be some thoughts going through your head. How do we make sense of all of that? How do we synthesize that? Jesus is in charge now, but at the same time, as John says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is not going to be a perfect illustration, but I'll give it a shot. Picture with me just for a minute the Gaga Ball pit outside. Now let's just say that it is filled with kids who are hard at play. And there's one kid, we'll say it's maybe a big kid, and that kid is just dominating everybody else. Throwing weight around, pushing, shoving, trash talking, spiking on little girls. It's a mean fella. And then somebody gets him out. Let's say that they took a hard fall when they did. But it was a clean shot. And the bully is eliminated. He's done. Game's over for you, pal. 
And everyone is rejoicing and hollering for him to exit the ring. Get out. We want to keep playing. But he won't. He just sits there and holds on to the ball and won't let anybody else play. And then the whole crew of kids starts to come over and reach their hands and pry his fingers back so they can get the ball out of his hands. Now, again, I know that's not a perfect illustration, but think with me for just a minute. Jesus now presently has all authority, heaven and on earth. The mission of the church in preaching the gospel and discipling the nations is that that authority of Jesus would then be visibly realized. He has control over it, but we're waiting to see the fullness of that. We're waiting for the enemy's hands to come off of the world. And slowly this is being realized. From 12 confused disciples after the crucifixion of their Lord to today at this point, millions of believers and cultures being transformed and darkness being forced out. It's as if more and more of the evil one's fingers are coming away from God's earth. If we were to go back to the text, and maybe I can continue for just another minute my imperfect illustration. Imagine that this gaga shark before he's eliminated, comes over to the one who would deliver the decisive blow and says to him, just tell everybody here that I'm the greatest and I'll get out and I'll let you play. For all the kids here, you can now understand this is very simply what was going on between Jesus and the devil. Except there was one major difference. In Gogaball you don't really ever know who's going to win. You might have an idea, but it is pretty random. Sometimes some strange things happen. But Jesus had heard that he was God's beloved son. And he knew more than that, too. From Psalm 2, which he would have memorized as a child, he would have known that the father said to the son, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. He would have also known the prophecy of Daniel 7 where the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and does receive absolute dominion over the whole earth. Jesus already knew how the story was going to play out. He knew that the Gagabal pit was his. But in order to fulfill all righteousness as our new Adam and representative head, he had to, as a man believe this by faith and walk in obedience to it. You can't skip. He has to go through it. And that's why the slanderer offers him this little easy off-ramp. No more suffering. No more Via Dolorosa. No bloody cross. Just instant victory. Right now. This is the same trick that he played with the bread just a minute ago. You know God's plan, but can you really trust it? You think God is going to give you the world. He's sure not making it look easy right now. Look here, I can do better. I'll give it all to you right now. I have the authority to do so. Just bow the knee to me and I'll sign the paperwork. Praise be to our Lord Jesus Christ. He refused. Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him 
only. Again, a quotation from Deuteronomy, this one from 6.13. Jesus succeeds where Old Testament Israel failed. They wandered in the wilderness facing a number of difficulties and were regularly tempted to bow to other gods to get relief. Yahweh told them that he was a jealous God. He swore to them that if they turned to idols, the anger of Yahweh your God would be kindled against you and he would destroy you from the face of the earth. And that's exactly what he did. He destroyed them all, except for a remnant, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A new Israel was born, and he resisted where old Israel gave in. Beloved, when the slanderer comes to us today, he comes to us as a defeated foe. His authority is gone and his kingdom is shrinking every day as his grip on this present darkness is bit by bit removed and greater numbers of his allies are added to the carpentry of Jesus' footstool. But his game plan is still the same. You can't trust your father. And he will use that same deception to get you to take the easy road, the instant off-ramp. So God said the church would sanctify you. It doesn't look like that's happening to me. These people are pretty irritating. Those pastors are pretty controlling. The community here is so limiting. Are you sure you're in the right place? I thought you said that God didn't want you to be alone. He said it's not good for man to be alone, right? But aren't you happier when your husband's not around? That other guy at church understands you so much better. Maybe he can be more what you're looking for. So God says you're his child. But this doesn't look like good fathering to me. You go through one thing and then there's another just around the corner. When's he going to give you a break? Can't he see you're hurting? Why don't you take it easy? Don't worry about the devotions. Don't worry about the prayers. You don't need to go to prayer meeting. Grab another cup of coffee. Get through the day. Get that glass of wine this evening. No, go for two. And one more episode of the show that you're binging on. As hard as he's made it on you, I'd say that your complaining is justified. Your kids don't seem to mind. So what will you do, beloved? Will you trust God or will you give in and take the easy road? Let's look briefly at the final challenge that Jesus faces. And he, that is the devil, led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verses nine through 11. In this final temptation, Satan puts Jesus in closest proximity to the presence of God in Old Testament Israel. Puts him right on the temple. And once again, on the basis of God's fatherly claim on the son, his trustworthiness is called into question. But this time, depending on what Bible you're holding, you may notice that Satan is upping the ante. He's, he quotes quite accurately Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Now, Matthew puts this temptation second, but I love that Luke puts it last. I think it shows that the slanderer is desperate at this point. 
Okay, Mr. Son of God, you like quoting scripture? I've got some for you. This is a really bad mistake. Satan, none of your tactics are working. You're getting impatient. Maybe try calming down. But one thing I really wouldn't do is quote the word of God to the word of God. (laughs) Nevertheless, his quotation of the psalm begs the question. What's wrong with Jesus jumping? Doesn't the word say that God will in fact save him? That is what the word says. But for Jesus to jump now, he would in effect be saying something like this. 40 days ago, the father said he loved me. But I want him to prove it. I could put him in a situation where he has to. When he does show up, I'll know for sure. Now, it sounds ridiculous for us to think that our Savior could have even thought that thought. The Bible has a word, however, for requiring God's faithfulness on our terms. And it is the sin of presumption. It is unbelief masquerading as faith. One commentator said, The demanding of miraculous protection where it is not needed is not faith or loyalty. It is sin. And so Jesus again quotes from Deuteronomy 6. It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Israel had done just that in the waterless place of Massa. God had promised to provide for them, but they hit their first dry spot on the road to the promised land, and they threatened to go back to Egypt if God didn't do something immediately. Show up and save us now on our terms. We're tired of this. They didn't trust God to bring the salvation when he was ready. And where Israel failed, Jesus wins again. At this point, we could go all the way back to our Adam comparison and contrast. What was the serpent's main argument to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? In other words, can you trust him? What's the major difference between Adam and Jesus? Well, Adam believed in God. Jesus did more. Jesus believed God. Adam believed in God. Jesus believed God. Jesus took the Father at his words. Again, R.C. Sproul said, One of the greatest crises in the church today is the unbelief of the church in the word of God. It is one thing to believe in God. It is another thing to believe God. Christ triumphed over Satan because he believed God. He trusted God. He put his life in the hands of God. And as a result, he was victorious. Now, church, whether or not you will win or lose in your fight against the slanderer is determined by this thing alone. Do you believe in God or do you believe God? Yes, we need to resist the devil together and he will flee, James 4, 7. Yes, you are going to need the whole armor of God in this fight, the belt of truth, helmet of salvation, 
sods of peace, breastplate of righteousness. But even in that list of the armor of God, there are two pieces that Paul seems to indicate are above all else. Ephesians 6.16. The shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And they're really two sides of the same coin, if you think about it. I will defend myself by believing exactly what God has said, and I will advance an attack using the words that God has said. That's exactly what we see from our Lord here. I could ask you this morning, do you prioritize the word of God? Do you study it? Do you memorize it? Do you meditate on it? Do you believe without question the things it says? Or do you look for holes in it? Do you try and make it fit your preferred system of thought? Or do you act like it does not speak to every area of life? I do want to encourage you, beloved, to read the word of God. And if you're not doing so, definitely step one. But more still than just read the word of God, believe the word of God. How do I know if I'm believing the word of God? Do you get up and obey it? How do I know if I'm obeying it? When is the last time you're reading the word of God, brought a revelation from the word of God, which commanded obedience to the word of God, which cost you something? David said, when purchasing the property for the temple of the Lord, I will not make sacrifices to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. In his seminal work, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer contrasted belief in God and believing God using the terms cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace, he says, is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. He compares that to costly grace. He says, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his good. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Now, beloved, if that doesn't describe you, but you're pricked to the heart that you've been living on cheap grace, that you've been believing in God but not believing God, and you want to repent today and follow God in obedience, then you are, in fact, interested in costly grace. Even in a small way. But Jesus said, it takes faith that small. And he can still do work. So this coming week, when temptation finds you, stop and ask yourself the simple question. What did God say about this moment? If your spouse irritates you, or your children are fighting one another, or your work for the week is crumbling in your hands, or you're offered the easy way out of your troubles, stop and ask, in this moment, what has God said? What does he require of me? 
He asked me to love my spouse in their sinful fit the way that I'd want them to love me in mine. He asked me to not exasperate my children with insults because of their disobedience, but point them to the law and then to repentance and then to Christ. He asked me to trust that as this job turns into a colossal failure, as my heavenly father, he isn't going to run out of ways or means to provide for my family. He asked me to remember that singleness or childlessness cannot remove my adoption status in heaven. He asked me to believe that this acute physical pain is part of his good plan to make me just like Jesus. And he asked me to believe that when I finish this trial, I will eventually meet another one. And that I need to trust him there too. Even for the Lord Jesus, you see in our text the temptations weren't over. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus didn't get to pick his decisive moment. And neither will we. And for all of us, there's going to be more than one. But what the enemy of your soul cannot resist is the one who takes God at his word. In the words of the demon Screwtape, be not deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon a universe in which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and then still obeys. May the Father see each of you in moments of temptation this coming week as one who has been led into a wilderness by the Holy Spirit, like King Jesus, believing that God will provide for you in the midst of that temptation. Because church, he is your father and he has never once broken his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the triumph of our savior, Jesus. We thank you that he came and did everything that we could never do. He was better than Adam, fulfilling all of the righteousness that was lacked in our first father. And he was better than Israel as the covenant head of the new covenant family. He fulfilled perfectly every commandment of your law. And he has also shared that righteousness with us to the extent that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love that you have for us. That we are so identified with Christ that you look at each of us and say, you are my child, I love you, and you're pleasing with me. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for giving us such a savior. And this week, when we face trial and temptation, would you help us to resist remembering what you have said and trusting it? Help us to be people that don't just believe in you, but we take you at your word and we believe you. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.